Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Grace Lynch. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Grace, Ravi, and I were just talking, and we came to the consensus that listeners would probably like to know more about Grace. So let's start with, what was this reporting trip you were on? Oh, that's a great question. So I am working on a show about the Texas education system. It is going to be a follow-up in some ways to Winning Wisconsin, which I made back in 2020, about Wisconsin's outsized role in our electoral system in regard to presidential elections. And this is the outsized role Texas plays on the nation's education, dating back to the 70s and 80s and some of the textbook censorship activism that was happening at the time and coming up to the modern CRT debate. So I got to drive around Texas with uh, Sarah Schleed, who also works on this show. Uh, we, I think, covered about 700 miles in three days and talked to oh, wow. people in five different little towns or cities and had some really interesting conversations and confrontations. So it was a whirlwind and very exciting. Tell us about the confrontation. Oh, there's just some real fascinating characters uh, in this series who have played large roles in the Texas education system. Um, a man who works in an office with no AC and no windows in the burning hot heat. He also doesn't eat five days out of the week. He's very peculiar and a creationist dentist. So there's little teases mm. of things to come. And um, and when are you and Harrison getting married? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I said they want to know more about you. Good question. Yeah. In all, you're engaged. I am Do you have engaged. A date? We're very excited. We are trying to get married next summer, along with everyone else in the world who postponed their wedding during COVID. So we will see, but there's still a lot of plans to be determined. The live recording of Majority Fifty Four would be the rehearsal dinner. Night, That's what or? we were we were hoping. Yeah. If that sure. wasn't yeah. too much of an imposition, yeah. but maybe the That's morning great. after would also be a real hoot and a half for everybody. I'll take a look at my calendar. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, that's exciting. Okay. Uh, well, let's talk some trash. Uh, I'm I'm very excited for this first talking trash uh, part because it is about John Fetterman and just trolling people on Twitter, and it is actually rather delightful. It just has so many good elements to it. So John Fetterman's running for U.S. Senate, Pennsylvania, a seat that we absolutely must take. And he's running against Dr. Oz, TV celebrity. And Fetterman, if people don't know, is kind of a, a different kind of candidate. He's 6'8", wears a hoodie, and is kind of like his own star in his own right. And he 
is definitely stylistically different than a lot of Democrats we see. He has definitely embraced the trolling. So he's been talking about Dr. Oz's residency because Dr. Oz lives in Jersey and he's trying to run in Pennsylvania for the U.S. Senate. And, you know, Fetterman has had some jokes about it. Fetterman and his team also know very, very well how to use Twitter to their advantage. One of his frequent attacks against Oz is for living in Jersey before crossing lines to run for Senate. He is now selling Dr. Oz for New Jersey bumper stickers on his website. And he even had a plane fly this banner over the Jersey Shore last weekend that said, Hey, Dr. Oz, welcome home to New Jersey. Love, John. Fetterman has said things like he's not one of us. He calls him Doc Hollywood. He talks about how Oz moved in with his mother-in-law. Moved in with his mother-in-law in order to be able to run in order to in run Pennsylvania, yeah. But some of my favorite parts of this, as as a guy who spent a lot of time in the Jersey Shore, is that he uh, he had uh, he had, he paid for Snooky do a video from the the show The Jersey Shore, in which she laments Doctor Oz's exodus from the great state of New Jersey. Hey, May Matt, this is Nicole Snooky. Um, and I'm from Jersey Shore. I don't know if you've seen of it before, um, but I heard that you moved from New Jersey to Pennsylvania to look for a new job. And personally, I don't know why anyone would want to leave Jersey because it's like the best place ever and we're all hot messes. Um, but I want to say best of luck to you. I know you're away from home and you're in a new place, but Jersey will not forget you. I just want to let you know I will not forget you. Great use of campaign funds, by the way. Ton of earned media there for that. But I, I just like the bravado here. I think my favorite part uh, of these ads is the one where he talks about how Dr. Oz is holding himself up as like a champion of the working man. And then it just shows on the screen like a, Dr. Oz being worth like $104 million. And then it just cuts back to Fetterman in a very authentic way, just going like, okay. <laughs> like It's kind of perfect. I've really appreciated his self-deprecating humor throughout and to turn that kind of same quipness against Oz for something that is so ridiculous, like the fact that he really is not from Pennsylvania and certainly doesn't really live there is just really delightful. And I think it's a kind of a, a new way of effectively using social media and campaign ads that uh, we haven't really seen from many Democrats, I don't think, at least that have this much fun that just doesn't ever seem to be the case. So not to be serious during talking trash, but I think that ultimately this race in Pennsylvania is going to be a test of just how partisan and parliamentary our, our politics are now, right? I mean, it has been a repeated pattern over the last several years that states don't go a different direction. This is not a presidential election, but that Senate races during presidential years don't go the opposite direction of how the presidential race goes. And this is a situation where we have a midterm election with a Democratic president where there's a lot of Republicans that are like, we just want to take the Senate no matter what. I mean, that's the whole theory behind Oz's candidacy in Pennsylvania, right? It's like, let's put up a guy who's got his own money and got his own name and we won't have to worry about that. And we'll just count on the idea that there'll be enough voters who'll be like, we just want a Republican. Meanwhile, on the Democratic side, you have a pretty compelling candidate. Like, you know, Fetterman is a guy who's going to cross over a lot of a lot of different genres. Uh, he should be somebody who should have a good chance to get a lot of independent voters. And he's got this knock on on Oz to be like, you you don't live here. You're not from here. So if Oz wins, 
uh, then I think you can pretty well settle into the idea of like, yeah, people are just voting party in, in Senate and congressional elections. It's just like a parliamentary election in that way. I do think we have a better chance of keeping the Senate than we do of keeping the House. And I think that's good news, because if I were to pick one of the two, I would pick the Senate, you know, first of all, because they're six-year terms, so they're, they're a little bit more stable. Two, that allows us to confirm people. Uh, so I think the – and then uh, by sheer numbers, not even just the six-year terms, but by the sheer scarcity of the U.S. Senate, that would be good. So I, I'm, I'm slightly hopeful there. Obviously, the House is, is looking tougher for us, especially with some of the recent redistricting news. But uh, yeah, so we'll just keep an eye on that. And I think this is a big one for us because this would be a pickup. So, But that's not the only trash that we need to talk, Jason. You had something you wanted to bring to the table. Well, I saw this just before we started recording here that I guess Tucker Carlson last night said uh he was talking about george soros you were, just, you were just curled up watching little tucker last night yeah true? you know as one okay. does um i yes that's right i i put on fox news for true like i do every night i was like we're not going to watch the all-star game true we're going to figure out who we hate today and uh, <laughs> so we're going to watch some fox no the truth is last night true and i were at a hustlers game but i did see this clip this morning of tucker carlson lamenting the idea that george soros has any influence at all in American politics. Now, why is some foreign-born billionaire allowed to change our country fundamentally? That's the big question. And I just think it is funny because like Rupert Murdoch, who's from Australia and a billionaire, has been like paying his paycheck for a very long time and seems to have fundamentally changed our country uh, in a major way. Also, Elon Musk. Right. Yeah. South Africa. That's African. a good point. Yeah. So like there's, we're nothing but just swirling around with some quote foreign born billionaires who are trying to dictate how we talk to each other and what we're saying. It's the American dream. Let's get to the news of the week. And this is a, a really sad story. So I want to highlight the story because we talked about Dobbs and we talk about the law, we talk about the politics, but I think it's really important to to ground this in the stories of real people trying to wrestle with the consequences of this decision. And so there was this case in Ohio that was really tragic. There is this 10-year-old girl who was raped, and because of the law in Ohio, there's a 2019 trigger law in Ohio, because of that law, she could not get an abortion in Ohio. So she crossed state lines, went to Indiana to get an abortion. And the Indy Star, which is a really reputable publication, which has multiple Pulitzer Prizes from what I understand, uh, there is a, a writer there named Shari Radavsky, who is an 18-year veteran reporter and is on the health and medical beat. She wrote a, a story about this 10-year-old girl traveling to uh, Indy to get this procedure and quickly, all havoc broke out. Biden mentioned this story in a speech, and that was enough for the right wing to just go absolutely insane. The story potentially was single sourced, so the right wing just took that as a you know an opportunity to say that it was false. Why did the Biden administration, speaking of lying, just repeat a story about a ten-year-old child who got pregnant? And they got an abortion or was not allowed to get an abortion when it turns out the story was not true. There is no shortage of 10-year-old rape victims. There's, there's victims from infants through the elderly, both yep. genders. There is more than you can count. There are so many monsters out there. So for me, what I find so deeply offensive is that they had to make up a fake one. Let's turn to Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost. So, Dave, have you had 
anybody come to you in your state to say we're looking into this? A police report was filed? Not a whisper anywhere. And so you had the Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost saying there was, quote, not a scintilla of evidence. It was a fabrication. Tucker Carlson said it turns out the story was not true. Jesse Waters said it was a mainstream media hoax. The Wall Street Journal editorial board said it was an abortion story too good to be true, which strange or too good to confirm, which is strange language. Now, turns out the story was true. The Columbus Dispatch confirmed it, and they confirmed that she was raped by a 27-year-old man. And I think this was illustrative of just a pathology on the right where they're just unwilling to accept the consequences of their own policy decisions. Yeah, I mean, that's... Everything about the story is tragic. And every element of a person who becomes pregnant not being able to receive the health care they need is tragic. It doesn't need to be this extreme for it to be tragic. And this is a particularly horrifying instance. But again, I just feel compelled to remind everyone that it is always horrifying if someone can't receive the health care that they need. And to watch it become a political football has been extremely sickening. And I think that to your point, Ravi, it's, it is really clear that the right really wants to outlaw abortion without wanting to deal with any of those repercussions. I mean, the, the attorney general for Ohio then went back to say like, oh, like they're actually, she would have never needed to leave Ohio. Like the law would have allowed, or well, he said it was false, but then once it was proven, he said that she wouldn't have needed to leave Ohio because there are medical exceptions broader than just the life of the mother in the Ohio law. However, that is actually not true. Yeah, that's what I was saying was false, to be clear. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh, oh yeah. yeah. I thought you were saying he originally said it was false, which he did. Yeah. Um, and so so for one, like, you're right. That's not That was not true. That's not ha- what the law states. It says that it has to be, you could only be used to prevent the death of the pregnant woman and to prevent a serious risk of the substantial and irreversible impairment of a bodily function, which it has to both be substantial and irreversible I would also argue that there's a lot of ambiguity in all of that, what quantifies substantial and irreversible of a bodily function, how at risk of death does someone need to be, like, am I, if I'm 20% at risk, then can I do it? <laughs> if I'm 40% at risk? Because once we get to 100, that's it, you know? So it's like, where are we drawing these lines? And those are the questions that Republicans really don't want to answer. And I saw this play out in another space, which was the House Oversight and Reform Committee had Erin Hawley testify. I don't know if either of you saw this, wife of Josh Hawley. She's one of the main architects behind the case that was presented in front of the Supreme Court. She's very passionate about restricting access to abortion in almost all instances. And she's being questioned by Representative Ayanna Presley about how to treat an ectopic pregnancy, which is a pregnancy that occurs outside of the uterus. The procedure to remove these fundamentally unviable, very dangerous pregnancies is an abortion. Ayanna Presley was asking her to confirm that these pregnancies are not viable, that you do need to abort them. And her response was, that's not abortion. Again, could you just answer the question, when an ectopic pregnancy ruptures, what are the chances that it can be safely carried to term? And, and you know what, just to make this even clearer, I'm looking for a number between zero to 100. Can you give me a, a percentage? Sure. I believe zero ectopic pregnancies, even those that do not rupture, have a chance of uh, 
successfully being carried to term. That's why the treatment for them is not an abortion. Reclaiming my time. Uh, it seems that there is a deficit in your understanding of reproductive health. When it comes to one's accurate understanding of reproductive health and abortion care with an ectopic pregnancy, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists says, quote, treatment for ectopic pregnancy requires ending a non-viable pregnancy, this is my time, end quote. That is so now a- I'm going to turn to the real experts. That's not an we'll, abortion because now it does I'm not have to the intent to end the life time, of a child. Reclaiming my time. Because an ectopic pregnancy cannot result in a living child, that's not abortion. The treatment for that wouldn't be abortion. And I understand that to her, it might not feel like abortion. <laughs> However, medically speaking, exact same. And legally speaking, the exact same. And right now, The Daily actually put out an episode this morning, Wednesday morning, about how doctors are already very hesitant to provide miscarriage care because the treatment for a miscarriage is identical to the treatment for an abortion. And so women are showing up to the hospital bleeding profusely in immense pain and being told that unless they start bleeding a, a like hemorrhaging amount that would like quantify life at risk, there's nothing they can do. And the penalty is a year in prison in Ohio if the doctor gets that wrong. And so now we have doctors not providing women just health care they actively need. One in four pregnancies result in miscarriages. That's so many. And we're just saying sorry or not even saying sorry, just either saying that's not abortion, which it is, or too bad. We're saying like that didn't happen. That, I mean, so I think there's two things here at play. One, it is the GOP quite clearly uh, admitting that they're wrong about this, but refusing to admit it, right? I mean, like when you're just like, when you're like, no, that 10-year-old didn't exist, you're you're exposing the fact that you're like, mm, yes, this law, if that 10-year-old did exist, this law would cause that. So you're just like, nope, doesn't exist, didn't happen, because you're you're confessing that this is a major oversight in this already terrible law. Uh, then the the second part of this is, and and I guess I'm a little, I've got avoidance on the brain because I've been doing these interviews about my book for two weeks. And, and so I, I talk about this concept of avoidance where when you have trauma, you have things that you don't want to face, you avoid them and you find different ways to do it. And I feel like on this, on guns, on all sorts of stuff, it's just trauma that the nation is is undergoing and there's a certain portion of the population that is just like, I will be avoiding that emotion. I will not be taking that in. And I will not be taking that in via pretending that it doesn't exist, right? So we see this with conspiracy theories about mass shootings where all of a sudden, oh, no, it's a false flag or, or you know, and so, and, and I think we often have trouble figuring out how those happen. I think they're avoidance. And in this case, it's like, nope, we will just be saying that that didn't happen and that that is made up because otherwise we might have to feel the feelings associated with this and act accordingly. And that's not something we're going to do. And so it, that's what it reminds me of is it's just a, a party wide attempt an emotional avoidance to avoid having to take any action to do the right thing. 
Well, this the reaction here is insane, right? So Jesse Waters, once it became clear that this this young girl did exist and, and this event did happen, the rape happened, and she did go to uh, Indianapolis. Like the dude was arrested. Like uh, they arrested he, a guy for it. Well, okay, so he was arrested and he was arraigned, right? You know how many people showed up for this? One reporter. Her name's Bethany Bruner for the Columbus Dispatch. So all these people who care about this case you know, couldn't be bothered to show up when the consequences of this were actually on full display because they weren't really interested in the journalism. But the right-wing media sprung into action. Jesse Waters took credit for the prosecution. So he turned around from saying it didn't exist to saying, oh, we brought attention to it. Town Hall's Matt Vespa accused progressives of celebrating the crime. So what I want to know is how do we talk about the consequences of their policies without being accused of celebrating it? A whole separate question. Indiana AG Taborokita then uh, started talking about going after the doctor uh, who performed this and turned out the, the doctor did everything legally uh, that the doctor was supposed to do, but it was like trying to go after her for not filing the proper paperwork, et cetera. Uh, Fox News then pointed to the immigration status of the person who raped the girl, allegedly, and tried to make it about that instead of their faulty reporting. I mean, I could go on, but clearly they, they're doing everything but apologizing for you know blatantly lying to their their viewers and listeners. Like Jim Jordan had a tweet where he said it was all a lie. And then when it was clear that it wasn't a lie, he just deleted it, which to me is like the the metaphor for the whole thing, right? Like that's how they approach all this stuff. When they get something wrong, they just pretend that it never happened. Like I remember, I remember at one point, I don't remember who said it, but I remember at one point in 2016 when Trump was running and people thought he wasn't going to win, somebody said that one day Donald Trump will look into a camera and say, what are you talking about? I never ran for president. And it's like, it, that's what this all is. It's like they just go, no, no, none of that ever happened. And to me, the point is not the gross, blatant lies. That at this point, I would say is par for the course. What is clear is that there is no plan or ability to properly enforce barbaric laws. And that's what the Republicans have been very clear that they want abortion to be criminalized. And then when it comes time to pursue that, they are faced with the horrifying reality of what that actually means. And I think hammering home that like, there is no way to legislate personal, immediate, fast moving medical decisions on a case by case basis. There's no clear way forward. And all it's going to do is cause pain. Well, let's also not miss the fact that they pounced on this knowing that they could say that it wasn't real. And the reason they knew they could say it wasn't real is because it was a 10 year old girl who was raped and that they were, they were capitalizing on the fact that they knew that the reporter and the doctor would never out the girl that they knew they would do the right thing and that they would keep the girl's identity confidential. And so they had free reign to do this and to, further this 10 year old girl's trauma like that's sick like that's that is wholly fucked up to just be like hey we can just say this with abandon because the person at the center of the story is never going to come forward because the people around them are going to rightfully protect them but we don't have those morals or or those qualms so we'll just go ahead and, and run straight ahead like that's pretty like like wow grace how long now have you been on the athletic greens train I've been on Athletic Greens now for over a year. 
and I'm never going back. And I will say that when I went on this reporting trip to Texas, I brought with me my little travel packs. And one morning I was filling it up, standing outside with my rental car, and a slight breeze came by and a lot of the powder started to fly away. And I actually yelped and went, oh, no, my greens. <laughs> so you have a choice in this situation, right? You can either go with a smaller dosage of your greens for the day or you can rip open another bag and be like, this is an excuse to get extra greens today. You know what you do is like that Bradley Cooper movie Limitless. You just lick it off the ground just frantically. That's the correct answer. Yeah, that's the correct answer. But, you know, you may be asking yourself, what is that substance that's blowing in the wind in some town in Texas? It's Athletic Greens AG1. Folks over at Athletic Greens are going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Uh, look, I just did, I'm still in the middle of this whole book tour where I'm just talking about therapy all the time. And what's interesting is how many people I talk to who sometime during the conversation, these are people who are interviewing me are like, yeah, I've been to therapy. The truth is like, a lot of people have been to therapy, but we kind of act like they haven't. And look, I, my thinking is, is that people who haven't been to therapy are intimidated by it uh, for whatever reason. Well, that's why our sponsor, BetterHelp, is a great opportunity. If you're a little bit intimidated by the concept of it, this certainly makes it more accessible. Well, BetterHelp is online therapy. And what I love about it is they have video, phone, and even live chat online therapy sessions. If you don't want to, you don't have to see somebody on camera, but you obviously could, and you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours, so they move fast. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash M54. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash M54. Let's talk about another big issue in the news right now, which is inflation. So we got our CPI numbers last week, the inflation numbers, and uh, inflation's up 9.1% over June of the prior year. That is the highest rise since 1981. This is being driven by a host of factors, including energy, which is up 7.5%. Gas, which is obviously a subset of energy, is up was up 11.2% from June over May. Food, 10%. I could go on. And obviously, this is linked to interest rate hikes. We've seen some already. We, uh, a lot of people are saying we're going to see some steep hikes ahead. Uh, we could be heading for a recession. Uh, what does this mean politically? I think a lot of people, uh, I think understandably, think this could be uh, the final nail in the coffin for November results. We don't talk like that or think like that because there's plenty of time between now and then. But what, what do we need to see from Democrats here in talking about this issue, including Biden? I think it's not good, Robbie. I'm going to come in with my expert analysis. This is um, not good. Uh, but uh, what concerns me most from Democrats is like, nobody seems to be able to agree on why this is happening and what to do about it, right? Like th there's a bunch of different takes on where to go, who to blame. You know, part of it is let's blame Putin. Part of it is let's blame what was left over to us by Trump. But, you know, and that could all be right but a cohesive message is necessary. Yeah, you know, Pelosi called it Putin's price hike, which I, I just find this unhelpful. Like, it's not true uh, that that's what's the primary thing driving this, so that, you know, it's it's both false, but also not politically helpful. 
You know, but one thing that is really helpful is that Biden a year ago called inflation temporary. And he said, quote, there's nobody suggesting there's unchecked inflation on the way. No serious economist. I'm sure that's not going to show up in any campaign ad this fall <laughs> whatsoever. Yeah. In preparing for this, I tried my best to make sense of these numbers as not an economist. And there's a great piece in The Atlantic by Derek Thompson. It's called The Everything is Weird Economy. It came out earlier this week. And it's just a really excellent breakdown of like why everything feels so squirrely and kind of why no one can talk about it competently. Because inflation is up, but gas prices are actually dropping. Amos Hochstein, I think I'm pronouncing his name right, he's the presidential coordinator on energy security, was on Face the Nation earlier um, this week and was giving like a great detailed breakdown of how most most gas prices now are under the five dollars a gallon, which is still a lot, but like is dropping from kind of some of it's the It's like four nineteen by my house. Right. It is dropping from kind of the super crazy prices we were seeing earlier this year. So like that should be a good sign. And yet our inflation numbers are higher than ever. You know, employment's up, but like overall, like GDP growth is down. The stock market's tanking, but people are vacationing. Like just like the fact that like nothing really seems to point in a coherent direction. And he gives some ideas as to why that could be. And a lot of it is responding from COVID with the great resignation. We now have a lot of jobs frantically rehiring, but a low percentage of that workforce is properly trained to actually do this job. So the output isn't still there and that everything's just kind of laggy and discombobulated. He still ultimately concludes that recession is likely, but paints a more well-rounded picture of why things are so weird. Similarly, Felix Salmon and Emily Peck of Axios were talking on Slate Money about how, like, we are not technically in a recession. However, everyone just has recession vibes. Like, everyone just feels bad about the economy. And that, to me, was honestly, I felt like the more important takeaway is that even if these numbers are conflicting, even if some indicators are improving, everyone feels crappy. And that should be something that I would hope politicians could actually speak to in a more compelling way because they don't have to get into the wompy, swampy numbers nonsense, but could actually just speak to the fact that here's what people are experiencing and here's our empathy and our ideas for that. But it seems that there's no cohesion and using Putin as a boogeyman just seems extremely non-compelling and non-helpful at this point in time. Well, for one thing, when you use Putin in a war that we don't seem to have any way to stop, uh, it just points to something that people go, well, what can we do about that? And when the answer is nothing, well, all you've done is you've, you've pointed to a cause that you can't actually control for. And therefore, you've given yourself no ability to be the party that people go, well, we'll, we'll go with you because you seem to be able to fix the problem. Well, do either of you have a thought on how that could be messaged better? Well, I, I think we, you know, as important as economists are, I, I think sometimes it's like it's the politicians, you know, that are going to have some of the, they're going to be working it out in public, you know, almost like comedians working out in clubs. And this is where I think like it has to be something simple, like what Jared Polis said the other week when he was like, uh, you know, what's the solution? Let's lower tariffs and increase immigration. Right. And I think like, first, first of all, it's true. Like those are two things that actually would help with inflation. It's practical. It gives somebody something to look towards. But also, both of those are things that you could lay at the foot of your opponents as well, right? Like who pushed those tariffs and who's restricting immigration? 
And so people could add to those two or have a different two, but like, I think it's as simple as that. And uh, I think like when people hear something like it's Putin's price hike, it, it sounds disingenuous and people are smart enough to know that it's not accurate. And I think it just adds to a sense that Biden doesn't want to take ownership over this, which I think unfortunately is true. Like, obviously I support the man, but it's like, he hasn't taken ownership over this. Like he'll, he'll start to take ownership over it, but then he'll do things like this and say things like calling it Putin's price hike. And, you know, like they cheered on the, the gas numbers this week. I, I'm on these, all, all these email lists from the white house. They're just, the tone is wrong. The substance is wrong. I just really wish they'd be better about this kind of stuff. Well, to governor Polis's point about tariffs and immigration, I did, I happened to be on a call uh, this week for work with a, a friend of mine who's a, a very dedicated Democrat and also happens to work in private equity. So not a ton of like very liberal people who work in private equity. So I always find his his views interesting. And he was like, look, man, it's there's parts of this that aren't that complicated. Like part of the reason we have inflation is we have a labor shortage. And yet, like we apparently are going out of our way to keep immigration from happening. He's like, it makes no sense. He's like, we don't have people that work these jobs. Maybe we should let some people into the country to work these jobs. Like, but but you can't say that. And he, he's right. Like, maybe we should just be like, no, actually, we need some of these people. Yeah. An interesting comparison is the UK is currently grappling with some of the worst inflation rates in all of Europe. And that's unsurprisingly very related to Brexit, where many of their you know service working jobs were done by Europeans from all over Europe. And now those folks can no longer get visas, cannot stay and work there. And so they've left, which means that the even though this is a globally felt phenomenon, a country that is purposefully limiting those that can functionally work there is experiencing it harder than any other. Yeah, I think this is a winning issue right now. And I think it not only do I think it's a winning issue, especially as we look ahead to 2024, because in part, we're trying to win this next election, but we're also starting a narrative that's going to play out in that election. Assuming it's Trump or DeSantis, these are highly, you know, anti-immigrant politicians. You know, Trump always in many ways his his victory to repeated racist rhetoric against immigrants in this country. This would be us going on the offense of not just being like, hey, for for reasons that we all believe, like the values of this country and the inclusivity and all that, good, but also for self-interested reasons, reasons that you could see with your own eyes. Like I agree, like you talk to people in the UK, I think there are a few years ahead of us in the sense of just the, the problem is, is more severe there than it is here, but we're quickly going to get to where they are. Like when people can't whether they're business owners can't find people to do basic jobs everything gets more expensive you can't find people to teach in schools like you start to go through this you can't find doctors nurses you I mean, go up and down the ladder of income in this country and the different types of jobs that we have people are going to start to feel it more and more and more and democrats can turn this issue that republicans have been demagoguing into a very practical kitchen table issue and it's something that people are experiencing in their everyday lives so you don't have to explain it right i mean like you you go to a restaurant and everybody is like, boy, the service is slow. And everybody goes, yeah, it's been really slow since COVID. They can't find anybody to work. Uh, even, you know, conservatives are are fond of saying nobody wants to work. Well, I mean, you, the window is right there for, you know, or the, the it, it's right there to, to walk right through. I don't know if you walk through a window. I do this a lot on this show where I just like completely mash up to. Well, if you want to rob the, the, the door place, is might, open, yeah. the door yeah. is open to walk right through. I mean, but it, you're right. It is at all levels. Like 
flights are getting canceled and it has nothing to do with the weather and it's because they're like well we don't have a crew we don't have a, we don't have either we don't have pilots or we don't have flight attendants or so you know there's lots of room for more immigration of all types yeah what's the gretzky saying like skate where the puck is going right this is where it's going right like let's get ahead of this and say all right like this is the narrative like people are, are starting to care about it more and more and more like my sense is this is going to be a dominant issue in no time over the last few weeks of this book tour i have been enduring a very severe case of shingles they're awful and they give you a lot of generalized pain uh, i often talk about in these ads uh, how great it is to get back to my helix mattress but let me tell you it really has been great to get back to my Helix mattress because I have been in a lot of pain and just sort of like sucking it up and doing these interviews. So there's two lessons here. Uh, the first lesson is that you should get yourself a Helix mattress. The other lesson is that I remain one tough dude. Yeah, fun story. First time you and I spoke on the phone ever, I had shingles when we spoke. I don't recommend it, but like you, I do recommend Helix. Just go to helixsleep.com slash majority54, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. And you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free, and they'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but of course you will. And they're offering up to $200 of all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners, if you go to helixsleep.com slash majority54, that's helixsleep.com slash majority54 for up to $200 off and two free pillows. Speaking of where the puck is going, this is a bad transition. The, the puck is going to some not good places on climate, uh, some really hot and scary places. And Biden, you know, as we record this on Wednesday, uh, he, I think today, is going to either declare a climate emergency or declare certain uh, aggressive steps on climate. He's in Massachusetts at a, a former coal-fired plant. And this, you know, his, whatever announcements he comes out with today will be in the context of a failed effort in the United States Senate to pass an ambitious $300 billion climate package that Manchin and Joe Manchin, uh, senator from West Virginia, at least for the moment, seems to be backing away from uh, and Manchin is citing uh, inflation in part for his uh, desire to slow that package down. You know, my questions are always political and how to talk to people in your life, but like climate change is obviously becoming more and more dire. We're running out of time. You know, UK is seeing record heat waves. I don't know. I don't even know what my question is other than to like, what, what do we make of all of this? For me, the the thing that feels extremely short-sighted is I understand inflation being a concern. However, the part of inflation that is felt most strongly right now are these inflated gas prices, or at least that's one of the absolute top. And that's only going to continue to be the case if we continue to rely this much on fossil fuels. And so to not invest now, to see how dire the situation is now. We have fires across Europe. We have a heat wave in the UK, which is so far north. We have a heat wave in America right now as well. And we're going to see all that happen. We're going to see these price increases on gas. And we're going to be like, let's not invest in something that will help us get out of this in the future. Let's double down on this recurring over and over again. It's just, you know, Joe Manchin holds an interesting position in the Senate. I was listening to a podcast that was debating whether or not to make him the real foil for the Democrats or to like keep him, keep him on our side and keep Democrats like Joe Manchin in the fold. 
And, you know, I don't really know where I come out on that. All I know is that he is deeply ingrained in the coal industry in West Virginia. And that conflict of interest just shouldn't go unacknowledged that he is severely compromised on this issue. And this is an issue that is not just important for Joe Manchin. It's important for the world. And so I really struggle when the choice is not to proactively set us set ourselves up for the future. And so I'm interested to see what Biden can do through executive order. But that always makes me nervous as well, because it's not as stable as something more legislative. It's always fascinating to me how politicians, particularly people who have spent a lot of their life in politics, can have no concept of the idea of a conflict of interest. They can see it in other people, but they can't see it in themselves. I can remember in Jefferson City, you know, you get 163 members of the of the House of Representatives, and, and it's a, a somewhat part-time job. I mean, you do it for five months out of the year. So a lot of the people there either were retired from other professions or they were in other professions when they weren't in the legislature. And it was always incredible to me how people would get up and they would say, well, I'm speaking on this bill because I know a lot about this because like, I remember one time there was a bill that had everything to do with basically a handout to pharmacists. It was like the pharmacy association in the state. And I remember this, this, fellow, this is like one of the most minor ones, but I remember this fellow got up and he was like, I own a pharmacy and I want to tell you why this is really important. And I just remember being like, well, what? Wow, like, <laughs> you have no idea that that's not, that's supposed to be a disqualifying statement. You're supposed to vote present, and uh, and so it it prompted me to. There was this thing I used to say all the time, which it was that in Jefferson City, conflict of interest is regularly substituted for expertise, and and that. So my point is, what Joe Manchin is thinking is not I have a conflict of interest, and I hope nobody calls me out on it. What he's thinking is. I am the Senate's foremost expert on energy. I'm from West Virginia. And that's pretty messed up. But that's the culture of, I don't want to say the culture of Washington, because that's pretty you know, trite. But that is the, the culture often of American politics, is to think whatever limited knowledge I bring to the situation makes me an expert, even if my experience actually makes me someone who stands to benefit from it going a certain way. Yeah, and you've seen them flirting with like the Coke network, I think has been, they've at least run ads at, at points supporting him for various actions he's taken. I think he views himself, he clearly seems to me like he's he's planning to run for re-election. There's a part of me that's like, great, because he's the only human alive who could carry that state for Democrats that I'm aware of. So that's great. And he tends to vote the way we need him to on things like judicial nominees. But I just... I wonder whether he has to play this particular game, you know, like, like you can, you could do sensible things on climate. And a lot of this stuff is not, it's not like a lot of this stuff is going to shut down coal power plants. This is not the equivalent of the EPA case that we're talking about where it's like more regulation. It's just more of the stuff we want, more clean energy. Right. And, and grace to what you said, like, what are, what could Biden do? There's one thing that's tucked into these articles that I'm just curious about, which is, it's being floated that he could use the Defense Production Act to boost renewables. Now, I have no idea how that would work in practice. Uh, like, does he commandeer factories that already exist to make renewables, right? Or existing renewable factories to make more renewables? Does he buy renewables from existing factories and increase their production or whatever? But I just kind of like the sound of it. I'm like, all right, well, that sounds practical. 
and you know, assuming the Supreme Court doesn't stop him, which obviously is a big assumption, that could be really interesting. You know, can can I just say like there was something to be said for earmarks, right? There was something to be said for the days when we could have handled this in such a way where we're like, okay, uh, we just got the majority in the Senate. And we recognize that, you know, Joe Manchin uh, is he's really on the fence about a lot of our stuff. And he's in a position of he's in a powerful position. There was two ways to go. Like we could have been like, well, we're going to persuade him as best we can on things like the filibuster and whatever, because, you know, his deal what for everything else, like he clearly sees himself as a guy who I'm here to represent West Virginia. I'm not here as a Democrat. I'm not here as anything. I'm here to represent West Virginia. Well, if that's the case, then why is West Virginia not at this point the most modern state in the United States. Like, like, how, why did we not just say like, okay, yeah, look, Manchin, you, you win. You've got us over a barrel here. Like, what do you need? Like, why, why does West Virginia not look like Coruscant from Star Wars? Like, it should be the state with high speed rail in every direction. And it has everything and a, a full employment and everybody's in, and, and we've 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 moved the Department of Agriculture from D.C. to West Virginia, and after that, we're going to move, uh, you know, the FDIC and the Department of Energy. Like, there's going to be so many jobs in West Virginia, and everybody in West Virginia is going to have a three car garage. But also, there's no filibuster, and we have voting rights, and we've been able to do something about guns. Like, wh- why have we not done that? God, not to be so cynical, but does Joe Manchin stand to make any personal money if we move all of those industries there and insert a high-speed rail? Speaking as a guy who operated in Afghanistan, I'm cool with that too. Like, I don't care. Like, (laughs) at this point, like, I just want to save kids in schools and not have women be at risk and all that. Like, hey, like, if that's, like, that was my gig over there was not to figure out how to get rid of corrupt people. It was to figure out how to move corrupt people because they were all corrupt into places where they had less, you know, access to their corrupt network of bad friends. Well, on the positive side, Manchin was on West Virginia radio on Friday saying that he'd reconsider his position if the economy improves. And so there's at least some hope here. By what metric? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, but uh, I will consider doing something about the asteroid if they put the McRib back on the menu. Like, these things have nothing to do... I mean, it's amazing. I mean, and in some ways, it's like, well, okay, well, what about if we could improve, to Jason's point, the the economy of West Virginia? Would that change something? I mean, the as Robbie mentioned, where Biden is giving this speech is the Bryant Point Power Station, which used to be the largest coal-powered electricity plant in New England, but is now transformed into a plant that's making cables for offshore wind to like connect to the power grid. So, you know, a great space to give a speech in about, you know, our need to switch to renewable energy, but also perhaps a great harbinger of things that we could bring to the great state of West Virginia. I'm so I'm just like ready. I'm on, I'm going to print t-shirts that are like, give Joe Manchin what he wants. Just get rid of the filibuster. That's too, I need a shorter thing for the t-shirt. Live show West Virginia listeners. If, if you're out there from West Virginia, I know there are some of you out there and you can, if you think you can get a crowd in any town in West Virginia, it's in driving distance to where I am. So we'll, we'll consider doing a live show. We can, uh, we could do like a, one of those cardboard cutouts of Joe Manchin and have a conversation with him. Uh, it could be really exciting. We could put a little tip jar underneath and we'll just offer him things. We'll be yeah, like an go. offering. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I think that's all we have here today. We, uh, we got to grab an oar. Uh, and so I'm just going to start with one request of the audience. 
I am planning to hit the road for a month or two to just get out into communities that reflect certain aspects of either the polarization or idiosyncrasies of this midterm election. And so if you're in a place that either has a competitive congressional race, gubernatorial, Senate race, and you have some story on the ground that you think could be interesting, send an email to Wes at lostdebate.com. That's W-E-S at lostdebate.com. And I bet I'll find a lot of good content for Majority 54 there too. So any story on the ground, people you think I should talk to, or a town that's at war over something, uh, that's the kind of stuff I'm looking for. Regarding Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD, I actually just quickly wanted to say thank you. Uh, I know there's an awful lot of people who listen to this show who uh, went out and bought the book, and that was very helpful. Uh, It is number nine on the New York Times bestseller list, uh, and that means a lot to me because it means a lot of people are going to get to read it, and and I know that I've I've just heard from so many people who it's affected them greatly and help them understand other people in their life, help them understand that they need to go get help, help them place their own trauma in context. And on top of that, all the royalties, uh, all my royalties go to Veterans Community Project. So I wanted to thank everybody for that and a little bit, you know, celebrate it. A little bit of a victory lap there. That's pretty cool. Uh, it's, It's pretty exciting voicemails uh we'd love to uh respond to your voicemails next week in fact um in light of our conversation about inflation and the economy we're going to have an actual economist join the show and help us make sense of all that's going on there so leave us voicemails that you would like us to pose to uh, an actual economist like a real one in the wild uh, we're currently hunting them we will trap them and bring them here and then you will hear from them uh the number is 508-687-2589-508-687-2589 hopefully we will find one that doesn't run very fast and therefore we'll be able to bring them here you can email us at m54 at wondermedianetwork.com m54 at wondermedianetwork.com for the same purpose i'm at jason kander on instagram and twitter Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Grace is at GraceLynch08 on Twitter, and she would prefer you stay the hell off her Instagram. She's not interested in that. Thank you very much. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, E.D. Allard, and Adeso Agbenile. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman, and special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.